This is a Wool Observatory podcast. Hello and welcome back to Star Stuff. My name is Cody Halfmoon, and today we'll be talking to a few of Lowell's planetary scientists to learn about rocky planets in our solar system. To help with today's episode, we have Maddie Mooney, one of our Lowell storytellers and our content writer. Hello. Dr. Amanda Bosch, a planetary scientist who has participated in various research um, and programs here at Lowell since 1986. And she's now our chief operating officer. Hi, Amanda. Hi, everybody. And we have uh, Dr. Jennifer Hanley, who works in collaboration with the Astrophysical Materials Laboratory. Um, Is there an acronym for that? Is it, do they call it AML? No, you know, we thought about that, but AML doesn't sound very interesting. So I don't know. Astronomers (laughs) are really specific about their acronyms at NAU. Yeah, we we would love to have a better acronym, I think, and a better name, but we're not very creative. (laughs) Well, we'll, we'll, um, we'll think of something for you. Maddie's our our storyteller. She'll come up with a fun one. Perfect. Please do. I'm like notoriously bad with acronyms though. Yeah. (laughs) I'll come up with something. <laughs> and um, Jennifer's an astronomer and planetary scientist here at Lowell. So thanks, guys, for joining us. It's really cool to have two scientists here at, from Lowell on the podcast. Usually we kind of have one and, you know, throw questions at them for an hour. But it's really cool to have two of you here today. Jennifer, so, okay, we, we've talked about the acronyms thing. You worked on something called Project Espresso. Yes. I have a question. Uh, and this, sure. uh, Amanda, I'd like to know your experience with this as well. With astronomers, what comes first? The acronym or the project name? The acronym. The acronym, right? <laughs> it has to. Because you've got... Yeah, like, usually there's... So- ridiculous names. Yeah, usually there's something some sort of words you want to use and you might build an acronym around some of those letters, Mm -hmm. but then you fill in the rest of the acronym after you have it. (laughs) Well, they did a, they did a good job. It's project, right? So project espresso project for exploration, science, pathfinder research for enhancing solar system observations. I mean, that's pretty clever. That's pretty good. I think that's, that's like not it. too bad compared to some other acronyms. You know, it's not so forced. We actually, we have the right first letters of everything. You're not using like the middle X for something. Uh-huh. Or <laughs> Gerard tried real hard for his Pokemon survey to get like Pokemon yes. Yes. <laughs> to work. Exactly. Um, and I think it's also descriptive, right? It I mean, the espresso part isn't, but the um, <laughs> the words that it means. Yeah. Except how much espresso you needed while you were on the project. Yeah, our logo is like a little coffee ring. Oh, no. Oh, cute. That is cute. I've definitely seen some that are more, um, that some some um, acronyms that really are strained. So yeah. that one is does not sound strained at all. No. It's not bad. I've never made one myself. <laughs> Man, I was trying to find um, acronym projects that you worked on, but I got intimidated because you've been, you've been just going since 1986. Basically I was like, I can't look through all this. (laughs) No, no, I I don't do acronym projects. I mean, I mean, I've been on some projects that have had acronyms, but I was not involved in the creation of those acronyms. Is that, is that a choice? Like no acronym projects. I can't do it. (laughs) No, I just, yeah, it just didn't happen (laughs) for one reason or another. I don't know why. And I'm curious, how did you both get interested in in planets in particular for planetary science? Because I know there are so many branches of science, like there are, it's not just really astronomy and planetary scientists, right? You've got, I just found this out, cosmologist. Cosmology. Cosmology. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this whole swath of options. And it's interesting because all we have to study and make these observations is light in different way that we can interpret this light. But um, how did you get into your field of like planets and planetary science? Well, mostly. Now we have gravity waves too. So we have uh, more than just light. Okay. Well, um, I'm curious about that. (laughs) Um, 
But how do you? It, I mean, I don't really have anything more to say about it because I don't do any uh, gravity wave studies. But it, that was one of the interesting things is that we've been studying the universe using light for just millennia. Um, you know, people just seeing what's happening in the sky, and and now we have a, another way to do that. Yeah, so it's it just uh, uh, it's actually gravitational waves. Gravity Sorry. waves yeah. are uh, something that you see in the atmosphere. That's yeah. What's the difference? You gravitational for, for... gravity. Gravitational waves are what Amanda was talking about, right? So when you actually have the interaction of gravity <laughs> um, that causes a gravitational wave, um, and then gravity waves are something that are seen in the atmosphere. Almost like heat waves, know, like, like how heat affects. It's like uh, something the way that like uh, a wave moving through a stable layer in the atmosphere, like thunderstorm updrafts produce gravity waves. And you, you can see this in sometimes in um, clouds. I think I think I'm getting the right thing here, but I could be wrong about this. Um, you can sometimes see cloud formations where they they are periodic. Yes. You know, you'll, you'll have, um, you know, a line of clouds and then a gap and another line and a gap and another line and the wavelength changes. Yes. Yeah. And just that's here on Earth or in other atmospheres? That's here on oh, Earth. Okay. That's a gravity wave. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I said the wrong thing. So, uh, yeah, thanks for correcting me, Jennifer. The gravitational wave is actually the, the bending of space-time. So that's... what you can see, it's it, this is the LIGO um, experiment. And so what they look at is the... Um, the difference in the lengths of the beam arms. Um, so when something like, you know, when you have a, I'm just going to stop talking because this is totally not my field. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I just, I mean, I'm on Wikipedia. It's really interesting. It's a large scale physics experiment and observatory designed to detect cosmic gravitational waves um, and to develop the wave observations as an astronomical tool. Uh, that's really cool. I've never, that hasn't come up in right. any of our conversations yet. That's really interesting. So like when two black holes merge, for instance. Did not know they could do that. Okay. That can mm -hmm. happen. Okay. Yeah. That's so new. that's actually what my, my husband studies. Maybe if you can ask him about it next, yeah. next time. But uh, when, for instance, two black holes or two very, very dense objects, right? So maybe a black hole and a neutron star, when they merge, you have the warping of space-time and you actually get a gravitational wave that can be detected by something like LIGO. Wow. That's terrifying. Um. <laughs> it's very, 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 very small changes. And so that's why these detectors are so sensitive. You're looking at, you know, a part in a quintillion difference between the two detectors. So it has to be very sensitive to actually detect them. The um, the technology using to to make these observations. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't sound uh, super fun to look out for. I feel like you have to be very detail oriented, and you have to be very okay with tedious tasks to be an astronomer. You have just so much patience to like sit there and look at all of this data that you've crunched and find the smallest little pattern that could change, which is like how Pluto was even discovered. It's, but it's crazy how you still have to have that mindset. Yeah. That's why I moved from astronomy to planetary science. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because uh, I can see planets and I can look at them. And mm -hmm. especially when you think about Mars, you know, we have rovers and uh, orbiters that can look at, 18 centimeters per pixel resolution, you know, that's spy satellite technology. And, uh, you know, we can actually see a lot of stuff. And I, I find it more intriguing to be able to actually see what I'm working on. Uh, I also do a lot of laboratory work. So it's very hands on. Mm -hmm. um, so that that folds into it as well. Okay, well, Jennifer, I have a question for you. So your bio says that you investigate spectral properties, which spect spectral to me makes me think of like ghosts and spooky things. Yeah. <laughs> but could you explain what that means in reference to your work? And yeah, so just explain that. <laughs> yeah, so by spectral, I mean talking about uh, the light waves that Cody mentioned earlier, right? So we're looking at different wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum. So predominantly, I look at 
light in the infrared or the near infrared. And that would be something like people might be familiar with infrared cameras. So you're looking at a slightly different wavelength than our eyes see. And everything interacts with light. And so what I'm doing is measuring how that light interacts with different minerals. And so I'm trying to determine where salts are present. And salts are important because they affect the stability of water and thus the habitability of the environment, you know, whether life could exist there or not. And one way we know if the salts are there and which salts are there is by looking at the spectra. So we look at these squiggly lines. Uh, Basically, we're looking at sunlight comes from the sun. It interacts with the surface of Mars or whatever planet, you know, you're studying. And the molecule, right, the mineral is made up of bonds of different atoms. And so the bonds vibrate because they have a frequency to them. They have some amount of energy. And when the sunlight interacts with that, you can see the difference of the energy when the molecules are vibrating reflected back to us. And so by looking at that reflection of the light and how the mineral has interfered with the sunlight, we can understand what minerals are present. And so I measure them in the lab for different salts and then go look for them on other planets. So you must be really excited about the uh, James Webb if your game is infrared. Uh Yeah, so uh, that is definitely going to be really interesting for looking at some of the, uh, you know, outer solar system bodies Mm. uh, that we can't get maybe the spatial resolution from Earth. And by that, I mean, you know, looking at it as a point source, right? So looking at it and it's so far away, it's so small to us from, from Earth. But because James Webb has such big telescope, you know, big uh, mirrors, you can actually look at smaller objects in more detail. And I'm curious, um, Amanda, did you use infrared light to discover the atmosphere on Pluto since it's so far away? Did you need that red shifted light or did you use something else? No, we were actually um, observing in the visible. Oh. And... um, the, um, the redshift out to Pluto is not significant, so that wasn't a big deal for us. And the, well, so I'm not sure where you want me to start here, but uh, the technique we used was um, called uh, stellar occultation, where um, Pluto passes in front of a distant star and then blocks the light from that star. So when we do a stellar occultation, we actually want to collect all of the light that we can possibly get because the resolution that we get from this particular technique is um, is limited by the signal-to-noise ratio, which is basically just limited by how many photons we can detect. So we try, in fact, usually not to um, use filters or do any kind of spectroscopy during this because we just want to get all of the light in one, one big bucket. Occultations are so fascinating. Yeah, so in fact, it, um, what one of the advantages of occultations is that it gives you a better spatial resolution than you can get with imaging. Like um, Jennifer was talking about some of the resolutions, like if you're just trying to take a picture of Mars, your resolution is limited in the end by the size of your mirror because of diffraction physics. And we won't go into that. But, um, <laughs> that sounds horrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's also limited by the, you know, the earth's atmosphere. If you're observing from the earth, um, and the seeing, you know, how stable the atmosphere is above your telescope. But the, um, and, and something like that at Pluto, our resolution is not going to be very good just in the using, you know, Im- imaging resolution uh, limits. But with um, occultations, we're limited instead by um, a different kind of a diffractive equation. And so in the end, we can get something like two kilometer resolution out at Pluto. Um, just depending upon uh, the wavelength of light that we're using. And that's impossible with um, imaging from the Earth, where the resolution is more like in the hundreds um, or thousands of kilometers. And I know in occultations, you have to do some travel typically to get the right angle so that 
sort of like if there's an eclipse, you have to be in a certain part of the world to really see that perfect eclipse. Um, did you have to do much traveling to get your occultations? That depends upon the size of the body that is occulting. So oh. something like um, Saturn, I studied Saturn and I used a stellar occultation technique for my um, thesis. Saturn is ginormous. Yeah. And that's a technical term. And um, <laughs> if if, <it's, laughs> if it is occulting the star anywhere on Earth, it's occulting the star everywhere on Earth. Oh. So it doesn't matter. You can just be wherever you are. Yeah. But for something like Pluto, which is smaller than the Earth, that means that the shadow that it casts on the earth is going to be smaller than the earth mm -hmm. as well and so you need to be in the right place mm -hmm. and so for the um for the 1988 occultation that's um one of our um well that was our first occultation um, by pluto um we needed to be in um well it was the south pacific actually so we ended up having to fly to um hawaii and um, cool. we were observing from the Kuiper Airborne Observatory, and um, we, we so we took off from the um, Air Force Base in Hawaii and flew down, and then landed in American Samoa f after the end of our flight. Mm -hmm. And so that was the area that we needed to be in. And other observers were in Australia for the same event. Other observers from Lowell Observatory. Was that Kathy Olkin? No, um, Kathy wasn't um, on the team at that point. Oh, okay. Um, she joined a little bit later. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but it was um, uh, um, like from Lowell Observatory, Bob Millis was on that team and Ralph Nye, Larry Wasserman. Um, they were in Australia for that particular event. When we had uh, Dr. Olkin on, she talked about occultations and brought you up quite a bit <laughs> in her conversations. <laughs> Well, we've done several occultations together after she joined the group when she was in grad school. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that occultation, it's not called an occultation, but when you're looking, like you mentioned Saturn and how it's so big that it doesn't really matter where you are from Earth. I know a lot of people will send in questions or ask like, you know, are there other Earth-like planets and other solar systems, but um, it's kind of the same problem, right? The Earth-like planets are so small that it's really hard to see when they pass in front of their star, but a huge gas giant, some colossal thing, it's easier to see when they pass in front of their own star, so we can tell that there's some planets out there. I know that exoplanets aren't y'all's like specialty, but that kind of reminded me of, because we got, we got that question about um, yeah. Earth-like planets. Well, it's related. Mm. It's related, right? Because the way you detect Earth-like planets around, or or giant planets around other stars, is to use the transit technique, and it's related to an occultation. But the difference is that the body that is blocking the light is smaller than the the star, or the the apparent diameter is smaller than the star, and so because they're both at the same distance, basically. So that, that planet will pass in front of the star and will block a little bit of that star's light. And if you have very accurate, uh, very accurate observations of how much light you're getting from that star, you can detect the drop oh, cool. due to the planet. And you can imagine then that those, that technique is, it's easier to find large planets because they block more of the star's light. Mm -hmm. And it's easier to find large planets that are close to the star because they um, because they orbit their star quickly, and so they can they keep on doing this, you know, frequently. So that's why um, a lot of hot Jupiters have been found, and the hot part just means that they're close to the star, oh, and okay. so their orbital period is very short. The other technique for finding exoplanets also biases against large close-in planets, right? Mm. The radial velocity technique. And so in that, you are looking at the redshift of, of the planet as it affects the star. And so that's what Express is actually looking at. That's an instrument at the LDT. And it has a very, very high precision of you know, measuring those Doppler shifts. And so they're hopeful that they can start to tease out smaller or Earth-sized planets around other stars. Oh, no kidding. That would be really mm -hmm. cool. Uh, our viewers would be really happy. They ask about that all the time. <laughs> yeah. 
Just to refresh my memory, could you, could you explain what redshift is again? I'm, I'm sorry if you've already explained that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So uh, redshift is basically when the light is shifted towards the red part of the spectrum. And that is due to the motion, the relative motion between the object and the observer. Uh, an example of that is when you hear an ambulance go by, you know, it's very loud. And kind of as it gets closer to you, it shifts its tone. Mm-hmm. And then as it's driving away from you, it shifts back. And so that's actually red and blue shift. And so you actually mm-hmm. hear the noise and it's changing due to the relative motions of, okay. of the two objects. I think I've also heard that called the Doppler effect. Is that's that right? That's so the it's same the same thing. thing? Yep. Wow. Okay, cool. I never knew that. So um, we hear it at different wavelengths, I guess, because of how far it is when it starts. And then as it gets closer, it's tighter. So it's like louder, right? Or wobblier. Right. In very um, basic terms, you know, basically you, if you have the wave of the, of the sound, right, you know, it's kind of has its peaks, ups and downs. And then as you're moving towards an object, it kind of gets shrunk. You know, the, the peaks, the, the spacing between the peaks gets shrunk. And so it actually changes the frequency of that wave, of that sound. Uh, and then as you're moving away, it kind of extends the, the distance between the two. And so that's redshift and blue shift. Okay. And, oh, okay. and you know, towards and away from, from the observer. So the redshifted light is tighter. So, no, other way. Other way. Other way. Okay. Redshift is, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. yeah. When you change the, um, the wavelength in sound, that changes the pitch. Mm-hmm. And then in, um, in light, it changes the color. So when right. things are moving away from us, then um, all of those wavelengths get to be a little bit longer. And so they shift toward the red. And that we can actually tie that back to um, Slifer's spectra from Lowell Observatory of galaxies. Um, and, they, and he found that um, galaxies were redshifted And so this was a sort of a conundrum really early on, because why are all these galaxies running away from us? Mm -hmm. You know, why don't they like us? What did we do wrong? (laughs) But it's really just the expansion of space. Right. So as as space is expanding, it's moving the things away from us. And that's why we get the redshift. But it's not just us. It's moving it away from everything. So everything, every place. Yes, that's right. Yeah. We're not the center of the universe. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, um, don't tell anyone, but that's actually my favorite discovery at Lowell is that space is expanding just because I feel like it changed so much about what we know existentially, which I think is really cool. I love Pluto, don't get me wrong, but I love that. Uh, I love that discovery. So if it's red, if it's in a red light, it's going away. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that you're right. I think that that was a really important discovery. It's a really, it's a paradigm shift because of it changed absolutely how, how we looked at everything in the universe. Yeah. I like to get, I have my existential hour every day where I just, um, you know, especially after these podcast episodes, but I think it's um, had a huge, like a hugely profound effect on everything else that we study when that was figured out. So that's pretty cool. And it's amazing that that you knew, oh, it's in redshift, that means it's going a different direction. I think that's super neat too. But I have vague memories of learning this in elementary school. So it's just probably one of those things that didn't stick. I actually, I learned about uh, sound and light waves in my high school psychology class and it was an elective. So like not everyone learned this and it was the first time I'd ever heard about it. I actually, I'm pretty sure that psychology class is the only class I actually like retained information from, (laughs) but I knew about like the Doppler effect and light waves and rods and cones in our eyes and all that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, shout out to my high school psychology teacher because she just (laughs) covered all the bases, I guess. (laughs) Did she teach you how to do your taxes though? That's what, yeah. No, I did. I did have a class called life skills in middle school where they taught us some of that stuff. Um, it, It was basically home ec. I don't know why they called it something different. Um, Yeah, but none of that in high school, and you can only remember so much from middle school. Um, But anyway, once you identify that a planet has an atmosphere, what methods do you use to identify the properties of that atmosphere? Like, you were talking about how you can see 
salts on the surface of a planet just by like the light waves that it gives off. So do you use similar methods in analyzing an atmosphere as a whole? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so uh, molecules will, their bonds will vibrate in different ways depending on their state, right? So if they're a solid or liquid or gas, uh, but they all tend to vibrate around the same energy because that's the energy of the bond. And so we can use those um, energy wavelengths to determine what the species of the atmosphere are composed of or what the atmosphere is composed of. I, I think that, you know, one of the things that you do, right? So when you're looking at a planet that has a has an atmosphere or a large moon, what you're seeing, it depends upon the thickness of the atmosphere. What you can be seeing is the ices on the surface of the body. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then if you know the, you know, at what temperature those ices sublimate, then you can theorize that there must be an atmosphere. And then if you do really high resolution spectroscopy, then you can actually um, detect the atmosphere through the, through its path length, you know, as you're looking down on the body. So, those are all things that you can do. Um, the other approach, and I just, you know, don't want to harp on occultations, but you can also use the occultation <laughs> no, I love technique. Them. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> um, because what happens when the planet passes in front of a star and it has an and it doesn't have an atmosphere, the starlight goes away just almost instantly. Not exactly instantly because of diffraction again, but almost instantly. Um, but if it has an atmosphere, then the then the um, starlight goes away slowly, gradually, because the atmosphere is refracting the light out of the beam. And so it's slowly taking the light away from the, from the star, and it's refracting it out of the beam, and so you're not seeing it until you get down to the bottom, and then it starts coming up again. Now, the interesting thing there is that when you record an occultation light curve using, you know, a, of a planet with an atmosphere, then you can take that and you can invert it or you can fit a model to it. And what that tells you is it gives you T over mu, which is the temperature of the atmosphere over the mean molecular weight of the species at at various heights within the atmosphere, just depending upon what your resolution was. And so if you happen to know, for instance, that the body has methane on the surface, and then you can theorize that it has methane in its atmosphere or nitrogen in its atmosphere, then you would know what the mean molecular weight is, and therefore you can get a temperature profile. So you can get the temperature of the atmosphere as a function of altitude in the atmosphere. You said species, and Jennifer said species. What do you mean by species? Because I'm assuming that's not different types of animals. (laughs) floating around in the atmosphere. I mean, it could be space. I've had weirder things come up in the podcast. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Pop the bubble there, but yeah, no, it's molecular species. Ah, okay. What's that mean? (laughs) So just different molecules. Oh, okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. Yeah, That's not as exciting as animals. Just to clarify for the people listening at home who don't know all this fabulous stuff, um, spectroscopy is just using light to study space, right? Like it's just that study as a whole. So everything we've talked about kind of falls under that category. Yeah. Yes. Okay, cool. Just uh, clarifying for the non-science people. Does the light bend differently around a planet when it had like it, during an occultation? Um, so like viewers, I'm in my mind, I'm picturing like what we would see as an eclipse. Does it bend around the planet differently if there is an, an atmosphere? I know it, the light will maybe extinguish more slowly, but does the bend of the light change? And can you see that from where we are? So, yes. I mean, it depends upon how thick the atmosphere is, what it's, you know, what it's composed of. You know, if you had large enough eyes, you could see this, um, directly, but um, we use the telescope as our giant eye so we can collect more light. And then there's there's some cool things that happen as well, because if you happen to be right in the center of the shadow during an occultation, then what will happen is that all the light that is being bent by that atmosphere will all come to a point. And so what will happen then in the light curve is that you know, you'll you'll start off with the starlight coming at at whatever level it is, and then it will it will be extinguished. It'll go away, and then in the middle of the planet, it'll all come back. Oh, cool! So like bend all the way around 
Yeah. And so it's all kind of come back and focused around and that's called a central flash. And then it will go away again and then it will come back once the planet has moved off the star. So if you're, you know, the first time you're looking at this, you're thinking there's a hole in the center yeah. of the planet. Why did all of this light suddenly come through? But that's not what's happening at all. There's a, you know, it's just the focusing effect of basically the entire planet is kind of acting like a big lens and taking all of that light and bringing it to you. And so from a science perspective, I mean, it's really cool to see. So, you know, it's, it, that's nice. We can just do that on its own. But from a science perspective, what it does is it tells us about the atmosphere at a lower level, at a lower altitude. So it's useful for, for that reason as well. Was that useful when discovering the atmosphere of Pluto? We were not in the central flash. Um, uh, at that time, the, um, our ability to predict where we needed to be was not, was not as good as was needed to be in the central flash zone. And so we were happy just to be anywhere in the shadow. Um, but later uh, occultations in 2011, 2015, that's what we were going for. And we were able to hit those. The central flash zone on Pluto is pretty small. It's less than 100 kilometers. So we little guy. As stressful as that sounds, it also it's also kind of fun. It's like you're chasing the occultation like around the world. Well, we absolutely were. Yeah, kind of romantic, I think. <laughs> big adventure. In all of these um, instances, we were not only just sort of planted on the ground, we were in, an, in a movable telescope, in a movable mm -hmm. observatory. So we were using an airborne observatory to fly ourselves into the shadow path, which wow. um, has its own set of um, difficulties. That's so neat. Yeah. Well, we, we, um, after we talked to Dr. Kathy Olkin, I was like, uh, from my lit major background, it's like occultation, the occult has to have something to do with this. We got to learn that it means um, hidden. So anything hidden is uh, occult-like. So that was really a really cool connection. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting, I think, that you can use these multiple techniques to study these atmospheres. Mm -hmm. So, you know, doing spectroscopy um, from the ground or from the air, um, and doing this occultation technique tells you about these planets in different ways. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we're actually looking at right now um, is, is Pluto. One of the reasons we're looking at it is because Pluto has a fairly eccentric orbit, and it is currently moving away from the sun. And its atmosphere is um, basically needs that heat from the sun in order to exist. Oh. And so as it moves away from the sun, we are expecting the atmosphere at a minimum to decrease in sort of how, how much is there in pressure and possibly to freeze out entirely onto the surface of Pluto. Really? And so... How long is its orbit? It is 250 years. Oh my God. Okay. So we have not experienced much of its orbit yet. Nope. No, nope. Not since it was discovered. It has not gone around once yet. Wow. That's amazing. That's why I find Pluto so relatable. I know. <laughs> It moves slow. It's running away from the sun. It's cold. <laughs> Unpre unpredictable. Yeah. Unpredictable. <laughs> Eccentric. Can't be labeled, yeah. obviously. We have a really hard time labeling the no. sky, too. Uh, there's a question I have uh, for Jennifer. Is this the method that you used to figure out what the liquids were like on Titan? And I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong, but... Um, so we have like Titan moving across the planet as a satellite. Are you using sort of similar, like looking at how the light bends around it or um, like specifically trying to figure out what this planet has on its surface? Can you go a little bit more into detail about that? Sure. So I'm sure some people use that technique mm -hmm. to look at the atmosphere of Titan. Uh, the atmosphere of Titan is very, very thick. And it's very opaque, meaning that it's very difficult to see through. In fact, uh, with our eyes in the visible light, it just looks like an orange ball because there's a lot of haze, uh, kind of, you know, smog, similar to smog uh, here on Earth. And so we need different techniques to, to look to the surface. Uh, one of the primary techniques we use is actually radar. Uh, so that's another similar, you know, it's, it's a different wavelength region, uh, but we're using radar because it's a longer wavelength. It can get through um, through the atmosphere and reflect 
reflect from the surface and we can see topography changes. So radar is very good for looking at like large scale features. And so uh, radar was what was used to determine that the lakes and seas exist on the surface of Titan. They still do. Mm -hmm. Yes. So Titan is the only other planetary body that we know of that has stable liquids on its surface. Of course, the other being earth. And uh, so there are lakes and seas <laughs> of, uh, of methane and ethane on the surface of Titan. So nothing we'd want to go swimming in. No, it's also very cold there. Right. It's uh, to be able to have methane and ethane in its their liquid form, which of course at sea level here, they would be gas, um, mm-hmm. primarily gases. Um, but uh, Titan is something like, you know, minus 200 degrees on the Gross. surface. And so okay. <laughs> uh, the water, there's actually water there, but it's in the form of ice because it's so cold. And mm-hmm. water ice is the bedrock. Water ice is the rock. Oh. And then methane and ethane are the liquids. So that's its crust. Yes. Ah. Water ice is its crust. And so it's a very strange place. Right. <laughs> um, so we're not picturing some Jurassic era with like water and mountains and stuff. It's basically an ice crust with. Well, it is. It is all that. And so there are mountains, there are rivers, there are, there are clouds. There's a whole methane cycle, just like the water cycle here on earth. So you have methane in the lakes and seas. It evaporates. Hmm. It forms clouds, they move, it rains, Uh, you have rivers, you can see river channels, and they flow back to the lakes and seas for a whole cycle. We think that there's karst formation, so that's basically like where on Earth, water erodes through the rock and makes like caves, Mm -hmm. Um, and we think that that a similar process is happening on Titan, and so there's maybe caves on Titan, but the rock is water ice. And the liquid is methane. I mean, it sounds very pretty. <laughs> Not horrifying to picture. It sounds gorgeous. Yeah. And so the other interesting thing about Titan is that its atmosphere is actually very similar to our own. It is um, predominantly made of nitrogen, which is the same as Earth. Earth's atmosphere is mostly nitrogen. Uh, Earth's atmosphere is one bar at sea level and or one atmosphere and titans is one and a half bars Uh, and so it's more dense than um than earth's but because titan's smaller there's less gravity and actually a really kind of fun fact about titan if you were to wear some sort of like wings, you know, kind of connect your arms to your torso and start running and flapping, (laughs) you would fly on Titan. Really? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Because the gravity is so low, but the atmosphere is more dense. And so you could actually get enough lift to, to like fly around Titan. But you couldn't do that on the moon because there's no, there's no atmosphere. So you just would, yeah. Very, very, very little. This is jumping, I mean, kind of the same topic, but jumping to another topic. There's that whole Occupy Mars movement that we've talked about quite a bit on this on this podcast. Um, and I've heard, I don't know if there's any truth to this, but I've heard of people theorizing that if they planted enough trees and had enough water on the surface of Mars that they could create like an artificial Earth-like atmosphere. Could that happen on Mars or like another planet or? Or specifically on Titan. Like I'm curious, could we live on Titan if we had enough sweaters? <laughs> yeah. So I think that Titan is probably a better uh, candidate than Mars would be. Uh, one reason is that even if we made an atmosphere on Mars, it's not going to last. We would have to be pumping more atmosphere into it than we need because Mars does not have a magnetic field. And so like on Earth, we have this magnetic field and that shields us from the solar wind. And the solar wind has very high energy and it will strip away, like as it interacts with the upper atmosphere, it actually strips away molecules. And that's almost certainly what happened to Mars's atmosphere in the past. It got lost due to solar wind. And without a magnetic field on Mars, Anything that we do 
is just going to get lost again. So we would have to take that into account when we're starting to, um, you know, create the atmosphere. We'd have to do, I, I don't even know what the rate would be. You know, the more atmosphere you have, actually the easier it is to lose because there's just more atmosphere. And so I don't know how much extra you would have to make in order to, you know, actually sustain an atmosphere. Uh, the tricky part on Titan would be that you have all these hydrocarbons, right? Methane and ethane, uh, things that, you know, propane, things that we use to actually burn, right? And why do they burn? Just because Earth has oxygen. Uh, and so Titan doesn't really have any oxygen. So that'd be really, it has very, very little amounts, um, but not like just a free molecule of oxygen. And I don't know. So we'd have to be very careful not to start like combusting things. I was going to say definitely no smoking on Titan. No, smoke free zone for sure. (laughs) We had a really fun conversation with uh, Dr. Uh, Rudolph Opperman and Kyler Keene about life on Mars and what it would take to like regenerate that atmosphere. Uh, And what I guess they're sort of looking into that now, if anyone wants like a deeper conversation about that, that was a few episodes back. But um, yeah, it doesn't, no matter how much I try to twist it, none of these places sound great to live on. <laughs> no, I'm pretty comfy here on Earth. I don't yeah, know about you guys. I like but... it here. <laughs> yeah. There's something romantic about living on another planet, but every time we actually talk to a, like a scientist about it, they're like, ooh, it would be bad. <laughs> yeah. We already have so many movies about like going to another planet going horribly wrong. So I'm, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little far from earth and help, but you know, if you want to live in a dome. Yeah. Right. I think, you know, domes and just kind of uh, space stations and, mm-hmm. you know, things like that are going to be what we have to deal with for the medium term at least. And in Titan at Titan, it would be easier because you don't have to worry so much about the atmosphere. Yeah, so, so another thing that would be nice is that compared to Mars is that the radiation environment isn't as damaging. Um, mm. And so yeah. on Mars, another thing <laughs> that the magnetic field helps with is, you know, radiation, cosmic radiation and, and solar radiation. And so Titan would have that going for it as well. Yeah, Mars sounded horrible. I was very excited. <laughs> I had high hopes for Mars. And after that, I was like, you know what? It's fine. Oh, I would love to visit Mars. Oh, I think God. that'd be amazing. It kind of just looks like Nevada to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, but it's, like it, it would look very different to you if you were there. So some of the okay. really interesting things about it would be, uh, since Mars is actually smaller than Earth, the horizon would look closer because mm. the planet is smaller and so it curves sooner. And oh, so the horizon creepy. would look really weird to you. Oh. <laughs> um and then also the sunsets are more blue than they are red. Mm, I actually knew that. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, just because of because it's a thinner atmosphere, it scatters light differently. And so, I don't know. I, I think it'd be pretty cool to go there. Maybe just for like a day just to check it out. But then I'd be Oof, like, okay, Venus. I'm going home now. <laughs> yeah, Venus would be great. It's warm. It's beautiful. <laughs> it melts lead. That's Cody's definition of warm. Yeah. <laughs> I miss Texas. So even Phoenix is not warm enough for you, huh? Yeah. <laughs> for those those of us that just crank the shower all the way to hot, I think it would be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anywhere else sounds sounds cold or um, a little too far from home. Like like Pluto. Um, Amanda, the atmosphere on Pluto, like what is that like? Could we live could we live on Pluto if we had enough no. sweaters and no. domes? Absolutely and- not. <laughs> You would need even more sweaters because it's even colder. Right. Um, and Pluto's atmosphere is a microbar. So we were talking about Titan is a Micro. one and a half bars. And mm-hmm. so it's a microbar on Pluto, which on the Earth, when you, um, if you're trying to draw a vacuum, you know, put something into a vacuum, a microbar is a vacuum. Um, so when you get to that point, you're like, yeah, we've got a great vacuum. Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Pluto's atmosphere is. It's barely there. Oh, so it would be horrible. It'd be great, though, because we'd be like 10 years old, you know, after a millennia pass, <laughs> like, oh, this ancient wise one. It's like, I'm like seven years old. I don't know. They're like <laughs> Plutonians or whatever yeah. species that I would pretend lives out there. I guess they wouldn't even make it probably a half uh, an orbit around its own sun. They have some challenges. It's, yeah. 
So question for our two planetary scientists while we're talking about Pluto. Is Pluto a planet? <laughs> there is a wrong answer. <laughs> My favorite answer is yes, it's a dwarf planet. <laughs> you don't get anyone angry that way, right? <laughs> I guess as we kind of talked about in the beginning, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. uh, I think all of these uh, moons and set or satellites mm -hmm. and, and rocky bodies are all very interesting and I call myself a planetary scientist and I study all of them. And so right. no matter what Pluto is called or what category it falls in, it's a very interesting planetary mm -hmm. body. Yeah. It's very pretty too. I like the heart on it. And we've got rock with Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars are our four rock rocky planets, right? Yep. Um, would Pluto be considered a rocky planet if it were still in that definition officially? It's a, it's not, it's a mixture. It's an icy planet. It's an icy planet. Yeah. It's a big ball of ice. It's a rock ice mixture. Gotcha. And then the others are yeah. just uh, gas planets. Gas giants. Gas, gas giants. Yeah. yeah. Um, in looking up information for this episode, I learned that Uranus has um, really pretty rings. Like I knew it had rings, but um, some of the artist renditions are quite gorgeous. You don't really think of that. Um, but I'm just... They're, yeah, they're very thin rings, and they're right. um, the material in Uranian rings are among the darkest material in the solar system. Wow, and, why? Um, that's, that's an indication of just sort of how long it's been out there. But um, because when you get hit by this um, solar radiation, it tends to darken material oh. over time. You know, the Uranian rings were not always known. They were actually discovered in 1977 by a stellar occultation, and... Um, that we were talking, um, you know, earlier mentioning about paradigm shifts in astronomy. And that one, I consider that one to be another paradigm shift because before 1977, everybody knew that there were, that only Saturn had rings because you could see it through a telescope and you could look at Uranus and you could see that it did not have Saturn-like rings, right? But, um, and same thing for um, Neptune and Jupiter. And in 1977, and in fact, we just passed, it was March 10th, 1977, when they were discovered. Um, and again, um, there was a group from Lowell Observatory who was in on part of that, really? in addition to Jim Elliott, yeah, who was my uh, advisor at MIT. But in um, what happened was that um, uh, they were looking at, and they were going to do a stellar occultation of Uranus to study its atmosphere using this technique. So you can look at the temperature as a function of altitude. And what they did is they just turned on the equipment early because um, that's what you do when you're observing, just because you never know what's going to show up. Serendipity is a big part of just, you know, of, of what we do sometimes. And so Jim turned on the equipment early and almost immediately the starlight started going away in these tiny little, very short dips. And so the starlight would be, so you would expect it to just be constant until the star, you know, hit the atmosphere, until the atmosphere moved in front of the star. But instead, it was kind of going away and coming back and then going away and coming back. And then, you know, the planet got in front of the star and it went away as they expected. And so, of course, they kept on observing on the other side of the planet and they found that the, um, that the dips repeated on the other side as well. And so... Uranus was, um, that was how Uranus was discovered to have these rings um, encircling it. And I actually went back to the IAU circular where they made this announcement and they actually announced it as a ring of satellites or several rings of satellites um, around Uranus. And I asked Jim why um, it seems so obvious to me that they should be, you know, rings, right. but not, and not satellites. And I said, well, why did you call them satellites? And he said that, well, you know, it was, it was known that only Saturn had satellites. It, nobody, you know, nobody really considered that Uranus could have, I mean, sorry, only that only Saturn had rings. Nobody really considered that Uranus could have rings. And so it was kind of a, you know, that was a little bit out there. And so one explanation would be, you know, these satellite zones. And so that's what they went with. But then it was quickly shown to be rings, ring systems. They're trying not to be too. Um, yeah. Try not to get the, too far yeah. ahead. <laughs> Got you. Yeah. Yeah. And then shortly after that, uh, Pioneer was, the Pioneer spacecraft was going past Jupiter. And so they were able to um, image it 
in such a way that they were actually able to see that Jupiter has a very, very tenuous, very thin ring that is impossible. To, well, what? it's possible, but it's really difficult to see from the ground. Yeah, you have to look at it in a certain way. And then Neptune also has rings. And so suddenly, um, within a couple of years, all of the giant planets had rings, whereas prior to that, before 1977, we only knew about the Saturn rings. So is it... Um... Is it something that's specific to gas planets that they have these rings? Because that seems to be the pattern. We have a, um, a sample size of one solar system. Right. And in our <laughs> sample of one, yeah. all of the giant planets have rings. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, it's, uh, it's gorgeous, though. I mean, I never really thought about Uranus very much, but I encourage everyone to just Google image Uranus rings to see just the, there's one that kind of pops up that says that um, the planetary rings of Uranus glow in cold light. I mean, these are just really cool celestial bodies. And I'm curious. So during the occultation, there was the um, the light came and went and came and went and then it left. So that's the planet. And then it came and went. Was it lined up kind of perfectly so that the rings lined up with the occultation? Because in my mind, it could have been oriented in a different way where you could have completely missed the rings. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, Uranus is a little bit different, right? Because if you, um, when you look at how it orbits around the sun and where its pole is, it has a very high obliquity, which means that its pole is tipped all the way over and is practically in the plane of its orbit. And so at certain times when you're looking at Uranus and, you know, if you, if you look at, actually, if you look at Uranus in the infrared, going back to the infrared, you can actually see the rings. That's what they were talking about because you can see the, the, um, the sort of the heat coming off of the rings. So certain times during its orbit, that pole will be pointing directly at us. So Uranus looks like a bullseye. And so very if cool. You, um, okay. Yeah. So you can see when you do an occultation, it's just uh, you get very symmetric, um, a very symmetric cord across the rings. So you can see rings, planet rings, and it's just they all happen at the same time. I mean, not exactly the same time, but they, you know, the spacing is the same. And Saturn's rings are thin, right? They're like... Well, thin is, um, depends on thin, how you, how you right. want to describe thin. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's um, thin in the width, um, which is, which is the Uranian rings, because uh, I can't remember, I think the uh, less than hundred kilometers across for each one of the rings. And that's not Saturn. Saturn's rings are th- each of its ring sections is thousands of kilometers wide. Ah, uh-huh. But then there's thin in height, vertical height. And that is where rings are thin. So the rings of, of Saturn are, you know, just meters high. Um, but they are 280,000 kilometers across. And so um, if you wanted to scale that down to something that I'm completely unfamiliar with, which is the size of a football field, but I did this... Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it is not something that comes naturally to me. But if you took a piece of paper and, and spread it over the size of the football, made it as large as the size of football field, that would be a good sort of a analogy for the rings of Saturn, mm-hmm. you know, how thick it is versus how wide it is. That's, um, it's, it's hard for me to picture in that whenever we talk about like relative sizes, my brain just sort of stops and buffers a little bit. Very hard to picture. But it is hard to picture. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> um, and in fact, one of the cool things about Saturn and, and Uranus, um, because the rings are so thin, when the uh, equator plane of each of the planet passes across the Earth, which it just does during certain times in its orbit, just because of the geometry, then Saturn's rings will appear to disappear. They don't physically disappear. They're still there. But when we're looking at the equator plane, which is where the rings are, we're looking at the rings, you know, basically edge on, and they're so thin that they basically disappear. You can't see them. Whereas, you know, if you look at them through a telescope, hopefully you've had the opportunity to, you know, look through one of the telescopes here at Saturn's rings, and they, you know, there are these great appendages on the side of Saturn. They're very bright. They reflect a lot of light. They're huge. Um, but uh, every 15 years-ish, they we, we go through this ring... Um, ring plane crossing and the the rings will not be visible in a telescope because we're looking at them edge on. No kidding. And 
they're so thin. Like you think that gravity, it would be like they're almost flat against the planet, like um, because of gravity, right? So it's it's odd that some are further out than others. Well, the the gravitational forces all balance. That's all I can say. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, is it more that like the rock and the dust in the ring are caught in its orbit rather than its gravity? Well, it's 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 because it's spinning. If you had a stationary Saturn there, right, I and you that. put a, a large ring system around it, then and it was not spinning, then yeah, that would just collapse onto the planet. But mm-hmm. because it is spinning, that's how you get that thin. Uh, okay. Yeah, I sort yeah. of forget that they're all spinning, and the sun is spinning, and everything's spinning. spinning. We're all just space is big, and it's moving, and it's, it's crazy, constantly yeah. <laughs> dizzying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Everything is spinning. I mean, that's how you kind of get planets in the first place mm-hmm. is you right. have this protoplanetary cloud that, you know, starts collapsing and spinning. And then you get these little nuclei in the cloud that are spinning and um, that they bring more material onto them through that gravity because they're growing and everything, things just don't stop spinning. <laughs> And we could never, I know we could never live on a gas planet, but um, have there been any, do you know, this is a very random question I just thought of, but do you know if there's any uh, research into like um, life on satellites that are orbiting these huge bodies? Like, because uh, I know we can't live on the planet because it's all gas, but it would make sense to live on a satellite of these planets. Right. Do you mean in our solar system or for exoplanets? Uh, I was thinking more in our solar system. Oh, for sure. That's absolutely what I do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is I've that heard of, like a cloud city on on Venus or something? Like like in Star Wars, there's that city that's just kind of flying. right. Yeah. I mean, so there are ways to live on the gas giants, but it would not be. You're not going to walk on them, right? Mm-hmm. You'd be floating mm-hmm. in a cloud city or something yeah. similar to really what you'd have to do on venus i'm sorry cody it's it's just too hot on the surface such a pretty view though <laughs> and would that be like is that kind of what you're looking at like oh we'll you know live as a satellite on europa which is a satellite of jupiter oh my gosh am i wrong right so i mean i think on europa or or some of the other satellites for instance you could go and make a base on the surface um, but obviously, there's a lot of challenges to that, that part, some of which we've discussed throughout this podcast, you know, radiation, breathability, you know, so, so uh, the atmosphere itself, uh, the temperature. So all those things would have to be considered. I think as far as life existing elsewhere besides Earth, the satellites of our outer solar system planets are some of the best candidates for that. So a lot of these are what we call ocean worlds, which means that they have oceans on them. They just happen to be underneath an ice crust. And so, uh, for instance, Europa is covered with water ice. That's its crust. But below that is liquid water. And it's in contact with the seafloor, just like on Earth. And Hmm. there might be hydrothermal vents, like on Earth, where we propose that life might have even originated in these black smokers oh. at the bottom of Earth's oceans. Jennifer, and you can't so... bring that up in the last few minutes of our podcast. Oh, no. What? Sorry. I need I more information. You on for part two. Oh, I need more information. <laughs> <laughs> We've done part twos before, right? We have done part twos. Yeah. Um, that sounds so interesting. I want to know more about that. Yeah. I really want to know what you mean by that, but also it's like... <laughs> We've been talking for past our time. Um, Quick teaser. What? So one of the potential places that life could have originated on Earth. So so life needs energy, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, back in the early Earth, the sun might have been stronger or maybe there wasn't. Uh, photosynthetic life hadn't is not how life started. Mm -hmm. And so we couldn't use the sun at that point. So you need some sort of chemical... Uh, and uh, energy gradient. And these black smokers at the bottom of Earth's ocean, basically it's a crack in the Earth's crust that has very hot, um, you know, it's heated from underneath with the you know magma underneath the Earth's crust. And 
the water is heated and it's interacting with the rocks, which dissolves some of the minerals. Mm -hmm. And so then you have this high concentration of warm water, energy, and maybe the right chemicals to sustain life. And so it's possible that that's where, where life originated on Earth. And, then and so, it could be happening on other exactly. planets too. <laughs> or satellites. Yeah. Or satellites. I think I have a, a YouTube video that explains all of this pretty well. That's kind of funny. Maybe we should post it on our social media. <laughs> yeah, add it to the Discord. So, um, and it would originate there, but then how would it get from there to Earth? Oh, so I mean, on Earth, it could have originated at the bottom of our oceans. Oh, okay. That's how, that's one theory as to how life originated on Earth is at the bottom of our oceans. Mm-hmm. Okay, got it. So, and that's sort of what might be happening on these other celestial bodies. Right. It's not that life right. moved from one planet to another. It's that this is a process that we think could have evolved life on Earth. And that process might happen somewhere else too. That is so super cool. I think we should leave on a high note with um, <laughs> with that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how to top that because that is some mind-bending information. But yes, we are at time. So thank you so much to both of you for joining us on in this insane conversation. I I loved I loved it and of course I just have way more questions so if either of you are down for a part two uh Jennifer maybe we get your husband on here to talk about um his research and also movie scores (laughs) sure Mm -hmm. I'm sure he'd love that for our favorite sci-fi movies um but yes thank you so much guys thank you for your time today really appreciate it yeah thank you If anyone has any questions, you can find us on our Discord or you can tweet uh, hashtag AskStarStuff or you can tweet us at StarStuffPod. This podcast was made possible by our members and donors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support our nonprofit in making more digital education like this available, go to lowell.edu slash donate. Thanks for listening.